0: Welcome back to orthodox.faith. This is John Harmon. And this is Ron Bentley. In this episode, we're in chapter 3 out of 4 in the Old Testament book of Ruth. The story is living up to its reputation as an all-time favorite, but speaking for myself here, John, I'm discovering some of the most riveting parts of the story are indeed important, just not always for the reason I first suspected. (laughs) Agreed. When we read carefully, with
1: a lot of attention to the actual story itself and to its context, we come away with a lot that often gets missed.
0: Well, in the first chapter of Ruth, and that was the first episode of this series, we were introduced to two of the main characters of the story, the widow Naomi and her widowed daughter-in-law Ruth. Naomi was desperate, hopeless, and she was bitter too. She saw her best option as returning to her hometown and trying to survive there. So that's what she did. She returned to Bethlehem from the nearby country of Moab. Right. Naomi was pretty down She blamed
1: God for her situation, and she told Ruth actually to stay behind. Like, maybe the gods of Moab would be more generous with her than Yahweh had been to Naomi. Mm. But Ruth insisted on loyal, sacrificial love and on covenant relationship with Yahweh, the God of Israel. So she had a choice, and that's the
0: choice she made seemingly against her own self-interest. Right. It's a surprising choice, or at least it looks that way. In any case, when Naomi and Ruth arrived together in Bethlehem, they had some pressing needs, a short-term need and a long-term need. Most urgently, they needed food. They just had to survive day by day, and that's where we picked up the story in the last episode in chapter two of the book of Ruth. Ruth took the initiative, and she went to glean in the barley fields. (laughs) Yeah, and not just any barley fields. Right. She just happens to glean in the fields of a prominent man, Boaz. It turns out he's a good man, too. He's generous with her, and he sends her home with a lot of grain, as well as an invitation to continue gleaning in his fields under his protection. So that took care of the first need, that short-term need. Right.
1: The second need, the long-term one, was to establish a family for Ruth through which her late husband's name and legacy could continue, and also to establish a family who could provide for her and protect her in that society where there were no safety nets and where she'd be especially vulnerable as a foreigner, a woman, and a widow. We talked about that In more detail in the last episode. And that need was still pending as chapter 2 came to a close. Right. But here in chapter 3, we'll see in this episode that Naomi takes the initiative this time.
0: John, this is a fascinating chapter. It's clearly chock full of some sort of tension. We might think we can guess at what the tension is. However, there are also elements in this story that are just bewildering to modern readers.
1: Yeah, you're right that there is tension. But in my experience studying and teaching this book, it is not necessarily the tension that modern readers first suspect.
0: Okay. Well, we hope to get to the end of this episode and have listeners realize this chapter is, in fact, every bit as exciting as they thought, just not necessarily for the reasons they first thought. (music) As chapter three
1: opens, Naomi has a plan for addressing that long-term need for family and security that we mentioned in the opening. She's playing matchmaker at this point. She says, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? that it may be well with you?
0: I gather that means I need to find something permanent for you where you'll be well provided for. And in this case, Boaz, the relative, was in the role that we explored in the last episode, a guardian redeemer for the family. Right. In Hebrew, guardian redeemer, he's
1: the goel. For the beer drinkers out there, that's pronounced Go Ale. Oh
0: God, thank you, John. I'll never be able to forget that now. Uh, Well, as you explained last time, that's a person who had the responsibility for redeeming and restoring property and even people who had been sold due to hardship and debt. The Go Ale would buy back or redeem what was lost in order for the family and its inheritance to stay intact. Getting back to Ruth here, because Boaz was related, Naomi seems to think perhaps he could address their long-term need as the guardian redeemer. Her method is surprising, isn't it? Mm -hmm.
1: Naomi gives Ruth instructions, telling her, tonight, Boaz will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, But don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Uh, There's a lot going on there, and we're going to work through it as we
0: go. John, I've got to ask, was this normal social convention? I'm not familiar with this scenario playing out anywhere else in the biblical story. Is there some customary behavior I'm missing here? We can't really say that this was a typical cultural
1: custom. Mm-hmm. That would be a bit shaky. But we can say that the cues are readable in the context. Okay. We, we can more or less decode what Naomi means in the plan that she presents and what happens as it plays out. But notice we're saying more or less, because when we get to the next scene, there are some gray areas, and we'll see it and discuss it.
0: All right, if I had to guess, I'd say it looks like Naomi recommends that Ruth exercise a symbolic way to ask Boaz for his permanent protection, specifically as a husband. Yes, and in doing that,
1: Naomi seems to be placing Ruth in an impossibly difficult position, at least from a human perspective. Okay, Uh, how so? Well, for one thing, Ruth is a servant who will be asking the boss to marry her. Okay. For another, she's a Moabite making a huge request of an Israelite. Uh. And what's more, she's a poor woman requesting a commitment from a wealthy man. So from a human perspective, it doesn't make sense that these two should marry.
0: Okay, this is way more complicated and sophisticated than Ruth simply hinting at Boaz, hey, if you're interested in me, I'm interested in you. <laughs> well, that's a painfully modern
1: way to look at this. Okay. There, there is far more at stake than that, and it completely misses the risks that Ruth is taking.
0: Got it. Well, up to this point, the relationship between Boaz and Ruth is certainly marked by respect, at least. Boaz respected Ruth because of her character and the reputation she had earned by caring for her mother-in-law. He'd already been generous to her and by extension to Naomi as well. Ruth now seemed to have taken a place among the servants in Boaz's household.
1: Yes. We might even say they were friends at least as we'd understand that in this context.
0: Okay. But Naomi's plan is essentially for Ruth to propose marriage, respect, generosity, even friendship. That's all well and good. But marriage in this context is on a completely different level. If I understand what you're suggesting, that's socially out of the question. This is just Fraught with difficulty. Yes. On a certain level, this was
1: a scheme that seemed doomed from the start. Okay. Uh, it was a hopeless gamble. This just shouldn't, and, and some would say couldn't, actually happen. And of course, that's precisely the point. That's the point? Right. Ron, you mentioned there was tension in the chapter. Mm-hmm. This is where that tension starts. Okay, Ruth is asking for something that in its social context is essentially preposterous. Even though it is technically legal, there's no problem with it under the law, But given all this, the ancient audience is is collectively holding
0: their breath. All right. Well, then it's all the more remarkable that Ruth goes along with the plan anyway. Uh, Maybe that's because she knows Naomi is looking out for her and she trusts her. In any case, this first scene in chapter three concludes with Ruth telling Naomi, I will do whatever you say. John, we've reached the third threshing floor scene in the Book of Ruth. <laughs> right. We'll describe it in a minute, but I want to start by addressing the elephant in the room here. Oh, and that is? To many modern readers, this portion of the story seems to be packed with sexual tension. Based on everything you've said up to this point, though, I suspect that's an extraordinarily naive way to read the story.
1: Yeah, Ron, a modern reader might well suspect an element of that here. Mm -hmm. However, there's a lot more to this part of the story when you read it in its original context. Okay, Modern audiences can get so excited about one small element of this story that they miss
0: everything else that's going on. Well, based on what we covered up to this point, it's now much more clear to me what's at stake, what Ruth's about to ask of Boaz and how far she's stepping outside social convention to ask that. Right. Things have been
1: interesting throughout the story so far, but here they get even more so. All right,
0: let's walk through it. Ruth goes ahead and she executes Naomi's plan to propose to Boaz. She goes to the threshing floor after the work of threshing and winnowing was finished for the day, just as Naomi instructed. Now, uh, the threshing floor, that was where the harvesters took those stalks of grain once they had been gathered from the fields. Right.
1: Threshing was the process of breaking up the heads of grain in order to break apart the usable edible seed from the husk. And other unusable material. We talked about all of that in the last episode, including the related process of winnowing. Mm -hmm. The threshing process left the parts broken up, but still lying together on the threshing floor. And winnowing involved tossing it all in the air, which was usually during the late part of the day when it was breeziest. And the breeze would carry away the husks and the dust and other lighter, useless material, while the more substantial seed fell back
0: down where it was gathered and used. Based on the description, I might suspect a threshing floor was out in the open. In other words, it was essentially a public place, right? There's no privacy here. Exactly.
1: And it was also probably not far from the fields for convenience, of course. They had to haul the stalks there for processing. In this case, it was probably Boaz's own threshing floor. It wasn't uncommon in Israel to have a shared community facility, a community threshing floor in a town. Okay. But in the story, they are
0: not in town. Mm -hmm.
1: So this is most likely a private threshing floor near Boaz's
0: fields. All right. Well, now the story tells us that after dinner, which appears to have been out at the threshing floor once the day's work was finished, Boaz went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. I don't know whether this is my modern ignorance of the context or a question that the story itself is pressing, but why would he sleep there? Had they all had too much to drink when the work was done? Did he just decide to pass out on the spot instead of working (laughs) his way back to the house?
1: Not likely. Okay. It was important for someone to keep watch over the threshing floor at night. Okay. There were piles of grain all over the place. That was his crop. Right. It was his wealth. Was it smart to leave it unattended all night for thieves to come and help themselves or to drink oneself into a stupor such that he wouldn't wake up if thieves did try to rob him? Mm -hmm. Well, of course not.
0: Yeah, that does make sense. We're told, in fact, that at midnight, something startled him awake, so he couldn't have been that far gone. In the next part of the story, he carries on an important conversation with Ruth, and he seems to be in full control of his faculties there.
1: Yes, when we reach that point, and Boaz realizes that whatever startled him awake awake, was not a thief. His words and behavior seem perfectly lucid, sober, and rational.
0: Okay, to get to that point, though, the story tells us Ruth went to the threshing floor after sundown. It seems to matter how she got there, though, but the translations differ a little in how they describe this. ESB says she went softly. NIV says quietly. NRSB says she went stealthily.
1: Yeah, I think the NRSV gets the closest with stealthily there because the idea in the Hebrew text is secrecy. She went unnoticed or hidden. It's the same word that's used of Yael who snuck up on Sisera in Judges 4 and drove the tent peg through his temple. And it's used of David when he crept up on Saul in the cave and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. It's not just
0: quiet or soft, it's sneaky. Well, John, I've got to ask why she came stealthily. I can imagine several reasons. Good question. The stealthy advance is an important feature of this story. Well, I suppose that the plan of coming secretly, stealthily after dark, at least has the effect of not putting Boaz on the spot. He didn't have to do anything publicly. Ruth was giving him the chance to accept or reject the role of guardian redeemer and to do it quietly. That's right. This apparently
1: was not about forcing Boaz's hand. Now, it might seem a little manipulative on a certain level, but the way this plan is carried out doesn't give Ruth any opportunity to get an upper hand.
0: Okay, John, let's bring back the elephant in the room that I mentioned earlier. (laughs) Modern readers just can't help but find some, what should I call it, suspicious ambiguity in the narrative (laughs) at this point.
1: That's true. Commentaries as well as ordinary modern readers can be all over the map on what's actually happening between these two at night on the threshing floor. This appears perplexing, given that Naomi instructs Ruth to
0: bathe, put on some perfumed oil, and
1: put on her best clothes.
0: Right. What am I supposed to think here? (laughs) Uh, However, it's also worth mentioning that the book of Judges described this as a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and presumably the point of that is it could be dangerous going out there after dark.
1: Yes, indeed. Naomi then says, uncover his feet and lie down which the text reports that she does. Mm -hmm. This is the smoking gun for those who read this as a less than honorable liaison or as an old-fashioned tryst. This chapter would be a lot easier to read if the author had just left that part out. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) all right. If it's not some euphemism for sexual activity, then it has to be symbolic. Okay. If it's symbolic, then it was most likely a gesture of invitation to Boaz to take Ruth as a wife. On its own, given what we have in the text itself, it just isn't clear what this action is. Mm. So many modern readers see the possibility that this vocabulary may present and draw conclusions based on a very selective collection of details. The rest of the very obvious context gets ignored. Mm-hmm. And while it stimulates today's reader's imaginations in the ways in which contemporary culture has conditioned our imaginations, the result is highly inconsistent with the rest of the data. This gets pointed out all the time. If you take certain words alone out of context, sure, you can create something else. But if we have to deal with the facts of the whole story, it's much more difficult, if not impossible, to get there. But there will always be those who insist, don't confuse me with the facts.
0: All right. Well, facts. I'm guessing there are other narrative details we should be noticing here as well.
1: Yeah. First, remember that these two were out in the open. Mm -hmm. There's no roof and no walls. It may be nighttime, but they're in public. And with Boaz having the task of protecting the crop from Thebes, it could be that they're not alone. We don't know this, of course, but how could Boaz effectively protect his threshing floor Mm single-handed? But I can't press that one too far. Second, listen to the words that follow his discovery of her there. He asks, who's there? And Ruth, having uncovered his feet earlier, and again, if that's not a euphemism, which we're contending doesn't fit the context, she invites him to replace the covering, but this time to include her under it. She says, spread your garment over your servant, for you are a guardian redeemer. She symbolically invites Boaz to take her into his permanent
0: protection as her husband, as the kinsman or guardian redeemer. There's some suspense here, isn't there? Surely we readers can be holding our breath at this point. What is Boaz going to say to that? We talked about this earlier. This was bold. From Boaz's perspective, it was forward and unexpected, but we also know he's favorable. Yes, he's
1: clearly favorable. Now, listen to how he refers to her as he agrees to the offer, or at least agrees to pursue the process. All the people of my town know that you are a, wait for it, Mm -hmm. a worthy woman. Uh Uh-huh. Or a woman of noble character. Got it. That's exactly the same word used of him when he was introduced in the last chapter. And we remember the same phrase used of the Proverbs 31 woman, right. an excellent noble woman of character. That does not sound like a description of a tawdry gold digger following an illicit interlude.
0: Okay, so the author of the story has gone to great lengths to establish the noble, the commendable, we can even say righteous characters of both Ruth and Boaz. So we have to read the scene in that context. Exactly. The opportunity was there for a tawdry affair. I use some words at least like that, John. (laughs) However, the question is, would that be the decision these people would make in that time, place, and culture under those circumstances. Boaz is concerned for her safety and for both of their reputations. He cares about how it looks. He tells her to stay put until right before dawn, and he sends her back home with some grain and an oath. That's right. We could say it's a cover-up,
1: no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> that is, pretty <good> <laughs> That is, someone might suggest that he's acting like he has something to hide, and okay. he wants to scuttle her away in the dark so he's not found out. Uh,
0: but I'm guessing there are more
1: hints that this is just not what's going on here. Indeed, there are. Once again, look back at Boaz's words. In response to Ruth's proposal to him as guardian-redeemer, Boaz said, And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord
0: lives— I will redeem you. So Boaz is committed to doing things the right way.
1: That's right.
0: Okay. And to take a a few steps further, he's committed to the law of God. In fact, he blesses Ruth. There's that word again. And he makes her a promise. He vows in the name of Yahweh to see this matter through by the book, I think you'd say, John. By now, it seems clear Boaz would very much like to marry Ruth. However, he would not violate God's law to do so. Yeah, when we put all the data together
1: in the context, and when we consider it even-handedly, I can't draw any other conclusion. This whole exchange might have been unusual, but it wasn't dishonorable. The wink-wink interpretation of, come on, we all know what really happened out there, It doesn't have much going for it.
0: There is some more new information that surfaces in this scene, too. Ruth knew that Boaz was a relative of Elimelech's and her own late husband's family, and so he was a potential guardian redeemer, but she did not know that Boaz was not the closest relative. Strictly speaking, by the way,
1: it was not the duty of the Goel, the guardian redeemer, to marry Ruth. Okay. He's not obligated to marry her by the letter of the law. The law we referred to in the first episode from Deuteronomy 25 mm-hmm. required a brother of a married man who died without having a son to marry the widow. But in the last episode, we also noted that the duty of the guardian redeemer seems to have been practiced more broadly than simply in the situations of redemption that are given when Leviticus 25 outlines the duties of the Goel.
0: Ah, so because Ruth didn't have a literal brother-in-law on her husband's side, the guardian redeemer could have seen it as his duty to step into that role, even though he might be a more distant relative. Exactly. The two responsibilities are coming together here.
1: Boaz sees the needs that the law intended to meet for the protection and provision of a young widow, as well as for the continuity of a deceased husband's family. And under these circumstances, he identifies all of those needs as part of the guardian redeemer's opportunity, if not his responsibility, to
0: meet. Let me make sure I've got this. Boaz does not technically have to marry Ruth. He probably has an out on a technicality. But he doesn't take that out. So if he doesn't marry her out of pure obligation, then it must be because she is, in fact, the woman of character and family loyalty that she's been described to be and that he knows her to be.
1: Yes, it appears that he wants her to be his wife, Mm. even though given
0: who he was, he could have easily chosen someone else. All right, well, to take it one step further, Boaz even seems to count himself fortunate to receive Ruth's interest. And that's even though the situation suggests She would be the fortunate one.
1: When Ruth returned home, of course, she gets the how did it go question from Naomi. (laughs) Okay. And, And Ruth gave a full report. As part of that report, Ruth added that the grain she was carrying was a gift from him, from Boaz. Uh,
0: By the way, that does not sound like a gesture that signals Boaz was put off or insulted by Ruth's bold move. No.
1: In fact, there are some scholars who see a degree of symbolism in that gift of barley.
0: Maybe a symbol that the time of famine for both Bethlehem and Naomi was officially over? Maybe.
1: Fruitfulness is about to dominate everyone's lives in this story. There may even be a foreshadowing of the fruit of a possible coming union. A child, perhaps? But in any case, Ruth reports the reason that Boaz gave for giving them the barley. He said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed.
0: I seem to recall we've heard that word empty before. At the end of chapter 1, Naomi announced to the people of Bethlehem the Lord's affliction on her and said that they should call her name bitter. She also said, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Nice catch. That is an important
1: connection. It really pays to read carefully. Naomi had used the same word to describe the empty-handedness with which God had brought her back to Bethlehem. Okay,
0: Something is definitely changing. (laughs) Naomi
1: is becoming not so empty-handed now.
0: Well, she also uses the term rest in the last verse of the chapter. She instructs Ruth, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he settles the matter today. In chapter one, that's what Naomi wanted for her daughter's-in-law, rest. And at the beginning of chapter three, that's still her goal for Ruth.
1: Right. Boaz would not rest until he had provided rest for his family. Last episode, we noticed a theme of blessing running through the book of Ruth. Ruth and Naomi were in a dire situation Nevertheless, there were blessings. And as the narrator frames it, this is not just good luck. Mm -hmm. Individuals in the story pray for Yahweh's blessing, and Yahweh answers those prayers.
0: In this particular episode, in chapter 3, if Ruth married a relative of Elimelech's and had a son, Naomi would be blessed. That's because Ruth's son by that union would continue Elimelech's line. However, it appears Naomi is also concerned that Ruth be blessed. After all, Ruth has blessed
1: her. Yeah, clearly we are to understand that Yahweh, God, is at work. Divine and human actions are somehow working together. Ron, we've actually spent some time with the interaction between grace, God's work for us, and free will. Yeah, we got a whole series on that. Go look it up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In this case, the characters do not stand idly by. They take action. However, we also see God's providential, redemptive work in this situation,
0: a situation that seemed hopeless. In this story, above all others, it is Naomi who expressed that sense of hopelessness. She was bitter. She felt abandoned. Nonetheless, God's grace, God's providential and redemptive work, as you called it, John, God's grace rekindled that hope, and God did it working through Ruth's loyal sacrificial love, uh, among other things. Naomi now sees hope where she saw none before. And that's where we'll wrap it up this time. Mm.
1: In our next and final episode on Ruth, we'll see how the cliffhanger resolves. (laughs) The nearest of kin, who's not Boaz, Uh has the next important decision to make. How will things turn out for Naomi and Ruth? What might
0: God be up to Through all of this. Stay tuned. (laughs) For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please do see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O R T H O D O C S. F A I T H. Thank you for listening.